I'm Marvin. I'm Joey. And this is the Balboa Horizons podcast. Today I have Joey Osinski here. He's one of Balboa Horizons case managers in intensive outpatient program. Trying to you know introduce yourself. We want to get to know you. Um, what you're all about. Well, so like you said, I'm one of the addiction counselors here at Balboa Horizons. I work primarily in IOP. Before I started working in IOP, I, I worked as at residential as an addiction counselor. I've also worked men's support staff at basically all the houses that we have here as a part of this program uh, to include detox as lead support staff. So I've been a pretty big part of, or I'd like to believe I'm a pretty big part of what Balboa has to offer. And really that came as a result of just what Balboa showed me and offered me uh, in my journey of sobriety. Uh, And talking about your journey of sobriety, how did you get to Balboa Horizons? So, (laughs) um, in a difficult way. I came here, uh, originally I was born and raised in the Seattle, Washington area. Uh, Mom, dad, younger brother, uh, decent family, you know, um, really nothing holding me back. You know, my parents did the best that they could to provide me with every possible opportunity. I know at a young age, I, you know, really longed for friendships. I wanted to be involved. I was very active in sports. Uh, really young age Cub Scouts and so forth. Because of the way that my house was structured, uh, dad's ex-military, my father's also a police officer. Uh, With that came a certain amount of expectations and responsibilities that fell on me uh, that I had to meet. Very much a rule follower uh, through and through. Rules were there for a reason and I was expected to follow them regardless. And uh, getting into junior high, you know, I was always afraid of breaking the rules because of that. And, you know, other kids around me, kids that I would call my friends uh, at the time uh, knew that as well. They knew that I wasn't going to break the rules and that I was going to do what was expected. And because of that, that made me an easy target for bullying. Uh, A lot of people picked on me and I let it happen because one, I didn't want to tell them because they were my friends and two, because there was a rule and an expectation that I wasn't allowed to do anything that would be considered out of line. So I couldn't really stand up for myself. I was afraid to do that. That's got to be tough. Yeah, I know it is, you know, and uh, wanting to be a part of something and the only way that I could be a part of anything or any group of people was to be their punching bag, essentially, you know, and I allowed it because I wanted to be included. That was really tough for a long time. I had a friend who I met in elementary school after I'd moved from uh, the Bonnie Lake area and moved out to Port Orchard, Washington, which is kind of just across the water from Seattle. I had a friend that I met in elementary, his name was Drake. And uh, I used to hang out with him all the time, barbecues after school and, and things like that. And in junior high, he started smoking weed, started doing things that I wasn't a part of. And uh, I think it was probably the summer before high school, you know, I, I had spent my whole junior high experience, like kind of really being that punching bag that I was talking about. And I did not like that at all. And I saw my friend Drake and, the, and some of the people he was hanging out with, you know, they didn't get picked on, they didn't get bullied, they didn't get messed with, you know, people left him alone. And uh, that was attractive to me, like in a big way. And because at the end of the day, like I just wanted to be a part of a community and not necessarily feel like I was being diminished or looked down on in any way. So, you know, I started hanging out with him and, you know, he introduced me to marijuana and I just started smoking pretty much every day with him. You know, I started to feel like I belonged to his group of friends and, you know, I took on that identity and, and kind of came to realize, you know, I'm, I'm uh, people kind of poke, poke at me a little bit, like I'm a little bit of a bigger guy. Uh, right now I'm like 6'6", six, six, you know, probably 235 pounds or so. and. You know, even then I was always bigger than all the other kids, but I was afraid to defend myself. And by hanging out with Drake and his friends, I learned that I, I was bigger than you and you weren't going to mess with me anymore. Uh, I, I wasn't going <laughs> to let that fly. And 
all the kids that knew me in junior high is kind of this pushover, you know, by the time high school came around over the summer, I, my whole presence changed and, and they weren't witness to that change. So until I showed up, that wasn't happening anymore. And I, for the first time, I really think that, you know, my very first addiction wasn't even necessarily to the substances itself because the first means of me coping with my reality was anger and aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I developed this anger that I used to keep people at arm's distance. I didn't want to let you in. And I certainly didn't want you to really get to know who I was because if I allowed you to do that, then you were going to see what I already knew yeah. and that I was doing the wrong thing and that I was failing and that I wasn't doing the things and taking the steps that I needed to take to actually be a success because I was too afraid to address those things. And now, as a counselor, I, I would imagine you see that all the time. Oh, absolutely. 100%. So this is normal behavior for, for addicts, alcoholics out there, anger issues. Oh, yeah. Anger issues. I mean, the, that's just one example, really. And this is starting way back in high school. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, early, early high school, you know, even before high school it really started for that matter. But yeah, people, not just myself, and you know, for me it was anger, but people take on many different roles to try and present themselves in a particular way as a means of, you know, protecting themselves. It's a defensive thing, you yeah. know. We're afraid, you know, we're full of fear and full of insecurities and we don't know how to deal with it. So what do we do? We reach for a bottle, we reach for a joint, we reach for a drug or not, or maybe we even include these behavioral things also to keep people at arm's distance because we're too afraid of ourselves and we're certainly afraid of you and we don't want people to see what we know. Hmm. You know, I know internally, especially at that time that I was not happy. I was full of doubt, full of fear. I, I, I had no sense of direction, no sense of hope, no sense of accomplishment. I couldn't even receive love. My parents would tell me that they love me and that they're proud of me. And I'd be like, for what? You know, <laughs> I couldn't, I, I couldn't even receive the love from other people because I didn't love myself, yeah. you know, and that was, that, that played into itself, you know, long-term because as I continued to do that and it works, you know, it really does work. Like, you know, I kept people at arm's distance. I, I put on a, a mean face and present myself aggressively. So you certainly didn't want to get to know me. And at the same time, I'm using drugs and alcohol to cope with my reality too. So like, and it all does its job. It protects me from addressing, you know, the real issues at hand. You know, it prevents me from really taking a good hard look at myself and, and doing what I have to do to move forward and progress towards what I want. Gotcha. You know, but the funny thing is, is because as I'm trying to progress towards what I think I want, at the same time, what I want more than that is to be left alone because I'm afraid to do the right thing. I've always known what the right thing to do was, but I was too afraid to do it because either my fear of my ability or what what have you. But you know, I just wasn't willing to do the right thing to get to where I was supposed to be because I always knew what that was, but I was too afraid to make those choices. I was too afraid of getting vulnerable. And, you know, you see that here all the time. You know, hopefully by the time guys get to IOP, they kind of work their way through that a little bit, become a little bit more willing to be transparent and get vulnerable and get uncomfortable and talk about those things that they don't want to talk about. Talk about the relationships they have with their parents and how they didn't receive enough love or whatever it may be. But, you know, they have to be honest. And Why would you say that's so important? For someone to you know get all those old feelings back up, mm-hmm. events that have happened in their life, traumatic events, I'd imagine. What what would be the benefit of that? Well, my experience is that like all the growth that you're going to come and experience in sobriety is going to come from painful experiences in the past. You know, we're we're experiencing all this pain, but on the other side of that pain is a whole lot of growth. The only thing we have to be willing to do is take those steps to work through it and get past it, you know, and because we've been so unwilling to address some of those traumatic things, whether that be emotional or financial or physical or what have you, you know, we were unwilling to address them then and it just got worse. It didn't get better. Yeah. You know what I mean? We continue to dig ourselves in this hole and wonder like, why isn't, why aren't things getting better? And then we we look up and it's like, well, shoot, I got a long way to go before I'm able to get out of this hole and we just give up. Yeah. 
you know, because like I said before, the anger, it worked. It kept me safe. You know, the drugs, they worked. Mm -hmm. They prevented me from facing my reality. And so then giving up then would be easier than living life in reality. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, so we were in high school. Did you start playing ball in high school? I, I, sports have been a really big part of my life. I played sports, I mean, since as far back as I can remember. I think in junior high I had to pick between either baseball or basketball because of the level of commitment that was going to come into it. Uh, so I chose basketball. Like I said, I've always been told I was six foot my first year of junior high. So, like, <laughs> you know, that's what people were pushing me to do. And, uh, you know, in high school I played for the varsity uh, high school team. I also played on the traveling team as well. Uh, and also, like, just, you know, city league as well. So I had a pretty full schedule with that. And uh, I was pretty good, I would hope, I would think. You know, college offers to go play in college and progress and get an education and do all that. But, you know, I can remember getting offers to play certain sports. My dad would be super proud of me. You know, they'd be super excited about all these opportunities that I'm getting. And, and I was so numb to it. Like, it almost pains me to think about it now how much effort my dad had put into filming the games and getting my stats and talking to coaches and doing all this marketing essentially you know promoting me and trying to give me an opportunity to accomplish something that you know he didn't have those same opportunities and he really wanted to see me succeed but like i was not willing to receive that love they were so excited i can remember them telling showing me letters and i just didn't care like about anything anymore like yeah. Drugs and alcohol robbed me of my serenity. It robbed me of my persons. It robbed me of my self-esteem. It robbed me of my relationships because I just fed into it because it was so much easier just to give into those urges and give into those fears than it was to just actually be honest with another person and say, you know what, I'm hurt. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I've messed up. You know, take some ownership and accountability. I wasn't willing to do that. You know, so I've just buried myself in more drinking and more using it just didn't play to my benefit at all. You know, I missed out on a lot of opportunities and I had some successes, you know, and, and in high school, you know, like I said, I was very successful, you know, varsity coming in. Um, but there was like this double life, you know, I was at school, I was an athlete and showed up to class. I didn't really do that well, but I showed up, you know, as soon as the bell rang, like it was a whole nother experience. You know, I was out hanging out with friends, doing things I probably shouldn't be doing out way too late, uh, getting into a little bit of trouble here and there. And, you know, that within itself was even exciting. Yeah. You know, I felt like I was doing something different than other people living life on the edge and it's exciting. And, you know, but at the end of the day, like some of my friends, you know, they're going on to college, they got good grades and now they've got, you know, they're doing really well and they're really successful and they didn't have to experience all the same things I did because they were at least willing to say when they were afraid and willing to ask help and not only ask for help, but then when they got it, they did something about it. Yeah. You know, even when I was willing to ask for help, you might tell me what the answer is, but I'm not going to do it because that just, no, 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 that's too much for me. Yeah. You know, so yeah, high school was uh, interesting to say the least. Um, so how did you get to the point where, you, you know, it's time to get sober? Well, there's a lot of things. The worst of my story really came probably after high school. You know, I, I had no direction. I felt like I had failed and let down everyone around me. And meanwhile, I couldn't figure out that I, all my failures was as a result of my drinking. I felt like yeah. it was everyone else's problem and their fault. If they just would have done something different, then this would have been different. But really, like, I was the problem, like, and especially my drinking, for sure. Like, I'd have a bottle in my hand wondering, like, why isn't this working out? Like, it was because I wouldn't stop drinking. Yeah. You know, and... Um, you wouldn't give yourself the chance. I wouldn't. I was afraid to, you know. I remember sleeping on a friend's couch. I had nowhere to live, really. My parents were pretty much done with me. And, um, and at this time, you're out of college now? I'm out of college. 
um, really had no hope, no sense Stop of Stopped going to college because you were drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, they didn't even want me back. <laughs> like my grades were that bad, I didn't yeah. show up. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was at a friend's house and I was sleeping on the couch. And I don't know what happened, I don't know how this came about, but um, a, a friend of mine came over and he actually woke me up, he didn't live there, he woke me up and he had some weed and he's like, hey man, you wanna smoke some of this weed? I told him no. Um, I was like, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I want to do that. What I ended up doing was I left that apartment and I went down to a recruiter's office. I, I said I was going to join the army. Um, so that's what I did. I went down to the recruiter's office and I walked in the door and told him like, hey, like, want to sign up? He's like, great. Well, let's, let's get you take a pre-ASVAB and a UA. And I'm like, no, give me 30 days. I'll be back. He's like, all right. And you know, I did. And, and like, I didn't really have any food. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. I, I, you know, I was living at a friend's house. Um, I think I was six six at about a hundred and sixty four pounds, you know, just skin wow. and bone. You know, so I started running, I started exercising, doing push ups and sit ups and trying to, you know, just refrain from using or doing anything and trying to be healthy because I knew I wanted to do this and um, thirty days later I went back to the recruiter's office and, you know, tested clean and was so I left after a little while for basic training, did really well. Got an offer from Command Sergeant Major of Special Operations to get into Ranger Battalion. Took the offer through Airborne School, went through pre-RASP, and then in Ranger School, or uh, RASP rather, not Ranger School, they're different. But in RASP, um, I was a voluntary withdrawal. I chose to leave, um, and I don't know why. Uh, nothing had been able to stop me from accomplishing that goal. I thought that that was gonna be, that was, that was it. Like if I was able to get through RASP, get my tan beret, and join regiment, like that, not only would I be proud of myself for actually having ever accomplished something that I set out to accomplish, that my dad would also be proud of me. The relationship that I have with him was was tough for a long time, and he never gave up, not once. And I let him down every single time, no matter what. And I thought that if I was able to accomplish this, you know, I'd be proud. I would have accomplished something and he'd be proud of me. And I wanted to do it probably for him more so than for myself. And I ended up leaving and I remember calling him, telling him that I left and, you know, he was just trying to support me and tell me it was all right. And I never understand, I, I'll never understand why I left. My case manager in, in, in treatment told me that um, I had a fear of success. I think it's a total cop-out answer, but it's the best one I got. <laughs> so after that, you know, I, I mean, that's what I set out to, to do and I, I didn't do it. I failed again, you know? And uh, so from that point forward, I was like, well, what's the point? So I just started drinking every day, heavy and hard, you know? Jack Daniels by the handle. Um, I just didn't care anymore and eventually got sent out to my, uh, my duty station uh, in North Carolina, Fort Bragg. I still was airborne qualified, so they sent me to an airborne unit. Did pretty good for a little while, but at the same time, my drinking was out of control, you know, showing up to formation drunk. I just didn't care, you know, I felt like there was no point to any of it. And eventually, you know, I ended up at a, at a house party. Um, I developed a cocaine habit and, uh, was at the house party, got drunk and decided that I, you know, wanted some cocaine. So I, you know, I borrowed a car <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, tried to make it to the dealer's house and 
you know, I ended up wrecking the car and uh, got stopped, got a DWI, unlawful possession motorized vehicle. Um, the DWI got dropped, uh, the unlawful possession got dropped as long as I was willing to pay the damages for the vehicle because I ran a stop sign and avoided a vehicle into the pit in the ditch. The, the front bumper was fucked up and the front right and rear right tires were both popped off the car uh, because of how fast I had taken the turn. Basically, at that point, my command knew only that I had a DWI. They didn't know about any of the cocaine yet. And the, uh, my captain asked me, you know, why should we keep you? I stood on a soapbox and told them this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. This isn't just a uniform, all these things. And it, it was true. Like, I meant what I was saying. My actions didn't show it, but that's really how I felt. And uh, he asked me to take a look at his computer tilted the screen and on the screen it said POS for COC and for those of you that don't know that means positive cocaine because they had given me a UA when I came back to the, my duty station came back to the barracks I did I pretend like I didn't know what was going on like I have no idea I don't know what that is he's like so you never done cocaine I'm like no I've never done it so I must have slipped something in the pre-workout like I, I don't know what's going on he's like okay fine so he handed me a piece of paper he handed me a pen he says I want you to write a sworn statement you're you're dismissed and um, so I left his office, came around the corner with my, uh, my sergeant. He was with me while I was supposed to write out this statement, basically lying, uh, saying that I had no idea about any of this cocaine. And they were contemplating up until that point to keep me. And I, at this point, I knew like I was done, like I was going to go for sure. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was honest. Probably the best thing I ever did. I was about to put pen to paper and write out this line. I couldn't do it. Now there's like a whole process before you just walk, you can't just like walk into the captain's office, you know, he, there's like, you have to be, you know, welcomed in, you have to stand at the door, you have to salute him, do this whole thing. I just went in there. I didn't knock. The door was still open. I just went straight into his office. I told him like I did it. I used cocaine. Gave him the whole story. Uh, because of that, they actually, my captain, first sergeant and my sergeant were actually trying to push the paperwork through to give me an article 15 so that I wasn't going to be discharged because of my honesty. Um, but by the time Command Sergeant Major found out, they're like, no, nah, it was too late. Like, they are going to give me a court-martial. Uh, apparently that month they had something like, I don't know, 10 other DWI issues. So, like, like they were trying to make an example. And because of my self-pity, I was fine with being that example. You know, this is what my life is. Like, I've always let down and failed, so this is just one more thing that yeah. I failed at. You know, whatever. Um, so they did that. They gave me a summarized court-martial. Did 30 days in jail. Uh, at the end of my jail term was my discharge date. Uh, so my, you know, I still had all my stuff and uh, my uh, sergeant and one of my other battle buddies was, is what they would call him, came and picked me up from jail and they're like, so where do you want to go? And that was it, you know, and I had, I think $600 in my bank account because they were still paying me while I was in jail, which was really nice. I asked them if they would be willing to do that and they did. Um, so they dropped me off at a hotel, you know. With $600. With $600 and and nothing. And nothing. Like, I had a duffel bag full of clothes. Like, Empty inside. It. Yeah. I had, I had no self-worth, no self-esteem. I felt like my whole life, this is this is what it's equate to. Like, no matter what I've tried. Like, at this point, I'd been a successful athlete. I'd been a relatively decent student. I'd never been in trouble with the law. I've never, never done anything bad. But, like, I always failed. I always fell short. I, was, I, I didn't see through my college scholarship. I wasn't continuing to play basketball. I got kicked out of the military. Like, I didn't have a job. I was never able to maintain anything like decent employment. You know, I was a horrible employee. Yeah. Uh, had no life skill. Like, I, there was nothing to show. At that point, I was, you know, almost, I must have been 22 years old, maybe, 23, and with nothing to show for it. 
you know, I was broken down. I was defeated. And I remember talking to my parents about it, you know, it was over the holidays. Um, I didn't talk to my mom, my dad, or my brother over Christmas. Um, they knew I was out of jail. They didn't try to contact me. I didn't contact them. Eventually I did end up reaching out or my mom reached out to me first, asked me how I was doing and I lied to her, told her everything's great, I'm doing well. And that night I was, uh, I probably prayed again, like this, there was a series of firsts here and I prayed for the first time, honestly, I remember crying, looking up at the ceiling uh, in this house that didn't have any electricity. You know, I just didn't know what to do. I wanted help. I didn't understand why everything failed and why I wasn't able to be an example for others or provide anything to anybody or have any sense of contribution. The next day I called my mom back, told her that what was going on. They said they'd be willing uh, to put me on a train from North Carolina back to Washington, but I had to go to treatment. And up until that point, like it wasn't the first time I heard the treatment option, you know, and I was never for it. I never wanted to put my name down on a piece of paper that said I had a problem. You know, I wasn't willing to admit the fact that my life was unmanageable and that I had no sense of how to do anything correctly. So I took the, the train ticket, uh, if anything, just for a nice warm bed and a meal. Like I really didn't have any real intentions of being sober. So I took the train ride from North Carolina to Washington. It's a three and a half day train ride. You go from North Carolina up to New York, I think. And you take it, the train from New York all the way across the country. I had no money, no cigarettes. I had literally three cans of soup, one package of crackers and no can opener. I was miserable, absolutely miserable. You know, took the train ride, and when it got to Washington, my parents were there, picked me up from the train, and uh, got into treatment. And I ended up meeting my uh, counselor for the first time. Now, I'd gone to, th I've seen therapists, you know, I've talked to other people and so forth, kind of talking about some of my issues. Uh, none of it ever stuck because I felt like I was terminally unique. Like, no one could possibly understand how I felt or what I've gone through. Like, you just don't know. So don't pretend like you know, because I don't know you, you certainly don't know me, and you can't relate to anything I got to say. So yeah, I ended up meeting my counselor, um, and this was the first time I had sat down and talked to a guy who really could relate. And I remember sitting down, and he says, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And I tell him just enough to kind of please him, to shut him up. He's like, yeah, it's great, and let me tell you about myself. And then he pursued to tell me his story, and how he went to prison for cooking meth, and like the other counselor in the next room was his cellmate. So someone's got a worse story than me. Um, so I no longer felt unique, and I think from that moment, for whatever reason, um, kind of opened me up a little bit, you know, kind of broke down a few of those walls. I was more willing to hear what he had to say now that I knew that he at least could relate to something yeah. that I had, had gone through. So you got a glimmer of hope, it sounds like. A little bit, you know, I felt like, you know, he actually had something here. I remember the very first assignment he gave me was he wanted me to write a letter to my dad and I wrote that letter. I had no idea that he was intending on having me share it in group and that was not the case. Um, brought the letter into group and he asked me to read it in front of everybody and uh, I literally could not get three words into that letter. Uh, I was bawling my eyes out, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't talk, you know, and I really kind of broke down. Um, and that was probably the first time I realized just how miserable I was and just how much I had given up on myself and my family and the people around me and the people that cared about me. Um, so from that point forward, I, I tried to really get involved and do the treatment thing and do the assignments and, and do as much as I could. The only problem was is it was a 28-day program. Um, so in that 28 days, really what they accomplished was they convinced me that I had a problem, uh, but they didn't tell me how to deal with it. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, so I graduated from the pro program. I didn't really have a very uh, good aftercare plan set up. I ended up 
uh, going to a hotel room that my parents bought for me following the residential treatment stay. I was still going to do their IOP program, but no sober livings. That just sounds like a bad idea flat out. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> like, you don't go from uh, residential treatment to a hotel. Right? Yeah. That, that's not good. Yeah. Um, and but, so their justification was is that, well, you know, you're still going to be an IOP. You still got to come in like two, three days a week and check in. But, like, okay, so out of a week, seven days, I'm spending like three hours uh, with a counselor in an yeah. IOP setting. Like, that's that's not going to be appropriate. Yeah. After my parents left, I ended up relapsing about 30 hours later. Wow. Um, I, and the only reason why I didn't relapse sooner was because my parents were with me for the first 24. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't. So yeah, I relapsed. Um, I still managed to get into a sober living. I manipulated my parents to let me go from Eastern Washington back out to Western Washington because, hey, I had a job. I got friends. I'll go to sober living. There's a lot more opportunities out there. Like, I'll, I'll be all right. And they fell for it. You know, they didn't know any better. They're like, okay, fine. Like, you'll go to sober living. You'll get a job. You'll work. And, and it'll be good. And I kind of honestly believed that to be true as well. Like yeah. I really wanted to do the right thing and be sober and, you know, get through this, but uh, I just didn't have the skills necessary to accomplish that. So again, I moved into a sober living out there, lied to him, said I had 30 days clean. I did not. I was still able to pass through UA and everything like that. So I got into the house and I think I lasted maybe a month. Uh, I relapsed again, got kicked out of sober living and ended up at a friend's house and, you know, ended up working construction uh, lost that job friend kicked me out you know and again like I was like like I can't do anything yeah. I, like I cannot do the simple like I can't just keep a job yeah like I can't do there's like my friend who's letting me live at his place rent free I yeah. can't like just maintain that yeah like I was I couldn't accomplish there's nothing that I was able to accomplish on my own accord so you know I was defeated and I, I, I talked with guys once again again defeated you know yeah. and one of the things that we talk about in you know treatment and in recovery circles is concept of surrendering long before I ever surrendered to this program like I was defeated hmm. there was nothing left for me there were no other options I was yeah. completely hopeless you know and uh, I ended up going to a psych ward slash detox and did that I think it was like four days five days from there they said hey you should go to treatment I was like whatever you know I got nowhere else to go I'm like <laughs> okay yeah. You know, and um, so I did. I went to this treatment center in uh, Long Beach, Washington. It's um, not a good place, so I won't say the name of it. I won't recommend anyone else ever go there. Um, but at the same time, um, even though I was willing to work on my alcoholism and drug addictions, I still had that anger issue, like in a big way. Like that was like the biggest hurdle for me to get over, I think, was just working on my anger and addressing my fears associated with it. Um, so that treatment center they sent me to from detox kicked me out after about a week and a half because I was labeled uh, a liability. Hmm. Uh, actually, when they kicked me out, they had a squad car and an ambulance in the parking lot because uh, they thought I was going to freak out. And uh, I did freak out. Uh, I didn't touch anybody, thankfully, because my dad was there and he was able to kind of keep me keep me calm. Yeah. So I was kicked out. It was just another... Another uh, failure. Another failure, another letdown. And I felt it was even worse because I was finally willing... You were trying. And ready to get help. Yeah. I wanted help. I wanted to do something different. And even when I was asking for help and wanted it, I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Yeah. Like these people are supposed to be willing to help me out and they're not willing to help me out. And, and they weren't willing to do that. Now, whether right, wrong or indifferent, whatever the case may be, you know, I'm grateful that I got kicked out of that place. Uh, that was probably the first time that I really got to experience the repercussions of my anger and the fact that I got to keep that in check. You know, that's just not appropriate. So from there, they sent me to, well, they didn't send me anywhere. They kicked me out. My parents were able to get me into a, another treatment center in Oregon, uh, which was a 30-day residential program. 
I remember my dad not knowing if I was even going to be able to get in because admissions was a little bit nervous about me because they got a report from the last place I was just at and they didn't really paint me in a positive light. Thankfully, the first counselor that I had, uh, the first treatment center I went to, Dave, he was able to vouch for me and talk about my experience there. So he actually was the reason why I was even able to get into treatment. Yeah. And I did, and I remember being there, and I think I was there about a week and a half, and I wanted the AMA. I wanted to leave. You know, they, they were saying, you, know, you got to do the steps, you got to do these assignments, you got to complete treatment, you got to do all these things. You mean I got to work? Well, not even just <laughs> that, man, but like, like, I didn't have a job. Yeah. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a car. I didn't have friends. I didn't have a family that was willing to take me. So, okay, so I'm going to do your 30-day program, yeah. right? I'm going to work your steps. I'm going to read your book. And then I'm going to complete this program, and like, what, everything's going to be better all of a sudden? Yeah. Like, there's no way. It didn't make sense, you know? And here's the reality is sobriety shouldn't make sense to somebody like me. I've never done it. It should not make sense. Yeah. If it made sense, I would have done it a long time ago. But it, <laughs> but it didn't, right? So they told me, like, just... Just stick around, do the work, it'll be okay. And I was like, reluctantly, okay, fine. Yeah. I'll do the work. Okay. I'll pr- I'm going to do the work, and when it doesn't work out... I'm going to stick it in your face. I'm going to stick it in your face and say, <laughs> ha, told you. Uh, but they were right. I stuck it out. I did their program. I tried to be of service to other guys who want- then wanted to leave, and I told them, like, you know what? I felt the same way. I'm still here. I don't know if this is going to work or not. I know what, what life has to offer me if I choose to leave. I don't know what life has to offer me if I choose to stay, you know, so I did, I, I realized like I just wasn't, I didn't know what to do. So I just took some simple direction. Um, from there, they, you know, I knew I needed more treatment. I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't everywhere else to go. My parents weren't willing to take me in. Yeah. And that's how I ended up here. I ended up at Balboa. You know, they, they sold me on this phenomenal extended care program, you know, where guys are going to go surfing and all this stuff. And, uh, I'm glad that I came here because what ended up happening is I met, you know, a lot of really great people and had a really awesome opportunity, not just to work on my recovery or my sobriety and get a sponsor and do step work or any of that stuff, but like learn just basic life skills, like things that like normal people like acquire at a young age, like how to just do like the right thing, yeah. like show up on time, be accountable. You say you're going to do something, you do it, you follow through, you hold yourself, you know, you're honest to your word, like just like basic stuff, <laughs> you know? That was like a foreign concept with me. So I got to learn all that. I learned how to cook. I learned how to clean. I learned how to do my assignments. I learned how to show up on time. I learned how to get, build a resume. I learned how to get a job. I learned how to have fun. You know, so long I thought just having fun was means getting, you know, drunk, getting messed up. Yeah. You know, like if I was going to go do anything, it was because like, well, we got to get drunk first. Yeah. Like we got to go do this first yeah. and then we can go do that yeah. and then we'll have fun. But that's not true. You know, I got to like learn how to like, you know, I remember the first group I did was Rock to Recovery. And like, I'm a fearful, insecure person and you're going to throw me into this group and expect me to play. I don't play instruments. I'm not musically inclined like at all. And they give me a drum. They want me to bang on it and look like an idiot. And I'm like, absolutely not. And I remember this guy, Wes, he's running the program and he's like this ter- stereotypical like Southern California guy and I'm sitting in the group just judging everybody and uh, he's like, he asked me, like, how much time sober do you got, man? I'm like, I don't know, like 45 days. Like, you know what, man? I'm like, what? He's like, that's rad. I'm like, you freaking weirdo. Like, that's rad. Like, okay. And they want me to bang on these drums. And it was just like, I wasn't willing to do it because I was uncomfortable. But like, over time I learned, like, I can bang on these drums. I don't have to know how to play an instrument. I'm going to have fun. You want to be miserable and sit in your corner and sulk. Like, that's fine. But I'm going to have a good time. So like, that was my first example of like, letting my guard down. Hmm. Like, being okay with being uncomfortable. Which is something I was never willing to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, I got into treatment, doing the, Rock to recovery, learning how to have fun, 
and then having a case manager that was I respect it at the same time. I had this really bad habit of saying, I know, I know, I know, I know. I go, did you pray this morning? Oh, I know. You make your bed? Oh, I know. And finally, he yanked me out of group and he took me out to the parking lot. He says, listen, buddy, you don't know shit. And like, I don't know why that stuck with me all these years, but like, he was right. Like, I had no clue how to stay sober, how to do the right thing. I had no clues. If I knew that I wouldn't have to be in treatment, I wouldn't have to have a counselor and a therapist and a group of guys who are like going to hold me accountable. Yeah. You know, because I know, like, yeah. okay. And I didn't, you know. So, yeah, you know, I did the 90-day residential treatment here. Six months of IOP. I'm just continuing to take direction and just stop listening to my own advice because he was right. I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. So I needed to listen to someone else who might have an idea. And even if they were wrong, at least I was willing to take direction. Yeah. Which is something I wasn't willing to do before. Yeah. You know, and slowly but surely, like everything just started to get better. You know, I, I have really healthy friendships. I have really healthy relationships. I have a fiance now. Like that's that blows my freaking mind. That that's like awesome. there's there's like another healthy human. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in, like emotionally and physically, who like that wants to like be that not just that wants to be with you forever. Yeah, like the rest of her life. Like that's insane. You know, that blows my mind. I got keys. That's great to an apartment that I pay for. You know, I, like I'm responsible. Like I pay bills. I hate how expensive bills can be, but like I really enjoy paying bills. Like it's it's awesome. It's, these are things I never got to do. You know, I have an awesome relationship, healthy relationship with my dad. You know, uh, a younger brother now who has an older brother to look up to. Mm. I was absent for most of his youth, yeah. most of his upbringing. I wasn't around. I was certainly not a role model. If anything, I showed him what not to do. Yeah. You know, I get to be a part of his life now. He's doing really well. I have a job that, you know, depends on me to accomplish certain tasks and I do them. And the best thing that I would hope that I'm able to offer anybody else is when they come in here, I get to show them, offer them the exact same experience that I had. You know, understanding that, yeah, we've done some bad things, but that doesn't mean that we're bad people and that doesn't mean that we're not capable. You know, the, the worst thing that I ever did was give up on myself. You know, I, I, I gave up on everyone else around me. And, and then gave up on myself. And at that point, there was nowhere for me to go and I didn't know what to do. I have faith in myself. I have faith in the people around me and I take direction and I listen to them. If you would have told me five years ago that this is the life I was gonna have and that I was gonna be living in Southern California, <laughs> you know, nice car, nice relationship, nice apartment, nice job, like with no fears. Like there's really nothing that I have to fear. Like there's nothing wrong at all. Like it's pretty nice. It's relaxing. There's no way that that's possible coming from where I came from. You know, I've overcome a lot of hurdles, but even, even then, like all those difficult days and, and difficult nights and stressful situations, all the, all the BS that I went through, those are like my greatest assets, you know, on that, on the other side of that pain is growth. Yeah. So you're using all of that baggage that you said when you, when we first started talking mm -hmm. as a springboard. Yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. That's yeah. truly remarkable. Whether it is or it isn't, I guess it's a matter of perception, but I'm proud of myself. That's, that's, that's the most important thing. You know, I did, like I was talking about before, like doing these things for my dad so that he could be proud of me. The funny thing is he just wanted me to be proud of me. Yeah. He just wanted me to be happy. He didn't care what I did. He didn't care what, where I was going. He just wanted me to be happy. And now I'm happy and I get to have an awesome relationship and it's, it has nothing to do with him. Yeah. I can even tell him to shut up sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's insane just how everything starts to come together uh, when we just stop doing the wrong thing and have a little bit of faith and do the right thing. I really, truly believe that at no point in time did the right decision like was beyond me. 
I always knew what the right decision was. I was just too afraid to do it. It was either too hard or too uncomfortable and I wasn't willing to go there. Um, now I just do, I take that action. I do what I'm supposed to do. And you help other people do the same thing. I, I try to. I really do. You know, that's, that, that, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people is having that willingness to do whatever it takes to stay sober. Because uh, you're going to need it. You know, even if you come in here and you just go through the motions, things are going to go get well. Mm-hmm. You're going to get healthy. Your mind's going to clear up. Things are start looking good. And you're going to start wanting to regain control of the show again. Yeah. You know, and you got to remember, like, it's not up to me. I need to rely on other people around me who have gone through this and continue to take that direction, continue to do what I know I should be doing. I should be going to group on time. I should be completing my assignments. I should have a sponsor. I should be going to meetings. But we'll talk ourselves out of that. You know, we'll say, ah, no. Yeah. Things are good. You know, let's let's try to like let's roll the dice and risk everything we've gained. No, you got to continue to do this thing, continue to do work. And as you're doing work, you're helping other people. Absolutely. If anything, you're leading by example. You know, showing up to your meeting on time every week, same meeting. I sit in the same freaking chair. Even if I don't share, they see me in that same chair every <laughs> single week. I'm leading by example. I'm showing up. I'm sitting down. I'm on time. I'm listening during the meeting. I'm participating. You might go to meetings. My favorite thing, yeah, I went to four meetings this week. What would you do? Did you listen? Oh, no, I was t- playing on Tinder on my phone. Hey, bro, <laughs> just listen. Just put the phone down. Yeah. You want to change? You want to, you want to get what you're worth? Well, you got to put in the work. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable and it's sometimes really easy for us to talk ourselves and justify why we don't have to do something. But we have to understand that like, we have to do it. It's so worth it. It's, I mean, I can't describe to you the life I get to live today and the opportunities that I have today. Like, there's, there's nothing you can't accomplish. I never once believed that until I got sober. There's literally, if I want to do something, I can do it. If I want to be a counselor, I'll be a counselor. There's nothing standing in my way. If I have a goal, I can accomplish those things. There's nothing that's preventing me from doing it. I have everything in the world preventing me from accomplishing the simplest of tasks you know, a number of years ago. The, the, now you're an example to everyone in our program. I, I, I would like to be. You are. You know. You're a great example. You're an example to me and all the guys that come through our program. And I really appreciate your time here and sharing your story. I was crying earlier with you because <laughs> um, I could relate, you know. And it's those instances where we can relate and find the similarities in our stories that, that, that we can finally open that door to the hope that you were talking about and actually change you know, at Babel Horizons, we have a saying, inspiring change and transforming lives. And I truly believe that you are doing that. So thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Marvin. I'm Joey. And that's the Babel Horizons podcast.